So I think we're ready to start. My name is Peter. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights. This is the moment where I ask you all to deactivate your communicator devices, your eavesdropping systems, your tracking devices, anything that can disrupt the integrity of the event. While you're doing so, I'll talk about some of the things that have been happening here at City Lights. Behind this wall here are the editorial offices of City Lights. I actually have some catalogs for books that we publish which if you ask me at the end of the event, I'm happy to give you one. You can also see this online at citylights.com. Uh, you'll see over here, there's an entire case of City Lights poetry books. And we continue to publish um, in the Pocket Poet series. And now there's a new series called the Spotlight series. We just did a book for uh, Edmund Berrigan in that. And uh, we also did a Stephen Jonas reader. Um, very, very excited about that. He's an underappreciated poet that actually had a big effect on people like Allen Ginsberg and, and many, many others. So if you want to learn more about the poetry that we produce, and we do a, lot, a fair amount of nonfiction, we also do translation. Uh, we actually did our very first graphic novel as an experiment. Uh, it's on the history of Herbert Marcuse. Uh, so um, just go to our website, check it out. It's also downstairs, there's a whole wall of City Lights published books near the, kind of near the front counter, around the corner in the main room. Um, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you want to be up on events like this one, future events, and future books to be published, forthcoming, and books that have recently been published. So with that said, I'm very, very excited about tonight's event because uh, City Lights loves Foucault. And Foucault used to shop here, as a matter of fact, back in the day. And many of his students and many of the people that he mentored have actually come through City Lights and we feel that uh, he is as relevant now as ever. And so it is with great joy that we're celebrating this new book, especially um, a very, very interesting subject matter. So tonight we have with us uh, Heather Dundas and um, David Wade. And uh, David is Simeon Wade's brother. Simeon is the author of the book that we're celebrating. It's called Foucault in California, A True Story Wherein the great French philosopher drops acid in the valley of death. I absolutely love that title. So it's published by our friends at Heyday Books. We have a very long-standing relationship with them. They have some really awesome books too. Great indie press. So um, the late Simeon Wade was born on July 22, 1940 in Alabama. Uh, he graduated from Harvard University uh, in intellectual history of Western civilization later he went on to teach at Claremont Graduate School, as well as teaching at numerous other universities in Southern California. In 1975, he hosted the French philosopher Michel Foucault, arranging a trip to Death Valley. And this, of course, included a consciousness-raising aspect. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about this tonight. Um, Heather is a creative writing teacher at University of Southern California. She is a playwright, a fiction writer. Uh, she organized the 2011 USC College Commons event entitled Creativity and the Older Woman Writer, which focused on 18th century uh, writers. So her research focuses on the development of women's writing over time. That's a specialty of hers. David Wade is a graduate of Harvard Law School and has been a practicing attorney for over 40 years. He is the younger brother of Simeon. Welcome to you both. Happy to be here. Um, 
So first of all, I'd like to thank City Lights for hosting us um, and to say how exciting it is to give a talk about uh, Michel Foucault's queer um, in, in his old stomping grounds. And also, you know, it's City Lights. That's <laughs> <laughs> really exciting. Um, so we're here to celebrate uh, the publication of Foucault in California, which is a long delayed publication, as, as you've heard. Um, Simeon started this manuscript in 1975. Um, he was unsuccessful in finding a publisher for it, although he tried. Um, and, uh, and it's only uh, after, uh, after Simeon died and uh, Team Simeon came together, headed by <laughs> the uh, indomitable David Wade, Simeon's brother, uh, that this publication actually uh, was able to be uh, effected. Um, so what we'll do tonight is I will read the foreword to the book uh, which I wrote, which describes how this book came to be and how I came to be involved in the project. Um, I'm going to show you a, a few slides to illustrate uh, the foreword. Um, a lot of these have never been seen in public before. They come from Simeon's uh, uh, carousel of slides that he kept um, of his trip with, with Foucault. Um, and then uh, once I'm done uh, reading from the foreword, uh, David Wade will read from the book itself so you can hear it in a, in a male voice, in a voice that sounds more like Simeon than I do. Uh, and he'll tell you some stories and, uh, and then we'll take questions or have a discussion uh, and stuff. Okay. So uh, as we've been giving these talks, I've found uh, often I need to explain uh, to people who Michel Foucault was. Um, I don't think that's really going to be necessary with this crowd, but I'll do it really fast. Okay, so Michel Foucault was a, was a philosopher. Um, he was French. He dated dates of his birth and death. Um, he was known, he wasn't a trained philosopher and he wasn't a trained historian, although he did both. Um, he was considered to be one of the uh, pivotal essential thinkers of the 20th century. Um, and he is known, or he was known popularly as uh, the philosopher of power. He was very interested in how power works in societies. Um, in the late 1970s or in the early 1980s, uh, the, Foucault, the focus of his work shifted slightly, um, and his late writing shows a new interest in antiquity, in truth, and in, eth in ethics. And everything I say about Foucault, uh, Foucault scholars will argue with. Um, <laughs> I want to say I am not a Foucault scholar. I am a creative writer, and I fell into this. So I'm doing my best, and if I get it wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Foucault's final, he, Foucault visited San Francisco quite a lot. He, he developed a deep love for California. And some of his lectures at UC Berkeley are available online. And the last one in particular I, I draw your attention to called The Culture of the Self, which you can find on openculture.com, and it is in English, which is nice. Okay. In the lives of Michel Foucault, David Macy quotes Foucault as speaking, quote, nostalgically of an unforgettable evening on LSD in carefully prepared doses <laughs> in the desert night with delicious music, nice people, and some chartreuse, end quote. This unforgettable evening took place in 1975 when Foucault, then a visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley, was driven to Death Valley by an assistant professor at Claremont Graduate School and his boyfriend, a pianist. Once there, the two young men persuaded Foucault to experience the desert night 
under the influence of a psychedelic drug. This was Foucault's first experience with acid, and by the morning he was crying and proclaiming that he knew truth with a capital T. I first heard this story in 2014 when I was a graduate student at the University of Southern California. I found it frankly hard to believe that a philosopher of Foucault's standing would have had the time to take a trip with two strangers, and even harder to believe that he would, at age 49, agree to experiment with psychedelic drugs with two strangers. The whole episode was absurd, I thought, and it triggered something deeply, deeply snarky in me. <laughs> I hated theory, and I hated Foucault, who seemed to embody all the privilege and arrogance of the theory movement. <coughs> when I heard that Foucault's host in Death Valley, Cinnamon Way, had an unpublished manuscript describing this experience in the desert, I decided to track him down. I wanted to get Wade's manuscript and use it to write a satire about idiot academics in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I badgered someone who knew someone who had his address. He's a recluse, the friend of a friend said, doesn't use a computer or a phone, and basically lives off the grid. I wrote Wade a letter introducing myself and asking for a meeting. He sent back a postcard with a date, a time, and the address of a Starbucks near his home in Oxnard, California, <laughs> which is about 65 miles from Pasadena, where I live. How will I know it's him, I asked my source. You'll know, he replied, <laughs> and I did. Half an hour after the appointed time, as I was getting ready to leave, a 25-year-old pickup truck rattled into the Pod Mall parking lot. The driver sat for a moment, finishing a cigarette before gathering up a half a dozen plastic grocery bags and an armload of books. A tall and heavy-set man, he wore an electric blue t-shirt, half tucked into a pair of baggy farmer jeans. Upon entering the Starbucks, he walked straight to me and dropped the bags and the books on the table where I sat. He doffed his emerald green baseball cap, revealing a bald head sprinkled with age spots. Delighted to meet you, he said, a trace of Texas in his accent. His words were as soft and whispered as Gaelic, and I realized with some alarm that he had no teeth. <laughs> I've brought you some reference material and an icy cold Coke for your drive home. And I thought, I have a picture. <laughs> this is the actual day Simeon went to the restroom. I was like, I gotta take a picture because nobody's gonna believe this. <laughs> so this was the actual day. And as you can see, Simeon likes to drink things that were uh, tall and very sweet. <laughs> He sat down and started telling tales that I found hard to believe. Oh yes, he had taken Michel Foucault to Death Valley. Foucault, Wade said, had loved this trip so much that he had called it one of the most important experiences of his life. But that was only the beginning of their association. Foucault had visited him several times. Wade had interviewed Foucault on television at Claremont Graduate School. Foucault had written to him to say that he burned a completed early manuscript of one volume of the history of sexuality as a direct result of his experience in Death Valley. Foucault had been at work on a manuscript about monsters during one of his <coughs> visits because, quote, he always thought he was a monster, end quote. Wade claimed that he and Foucault remained friends for the rest of Foucault's life and that there was a photograph in Time Magazine to prove it. Indeed, Foucault had written to ask his dear friend Simeon to bring more LSD to him in Paris in 1984 when he was dying. Michelle wanted to go out tripping like Aldous Huxley, Wade said. In 
In response to my bug-eyed question, he snapped that yes, he had written a manuscript about this, but no one was interested in publishing it. Could I see it? Wade looked at me suspiciously. His manuscripts were somewhere deep in one of his four storage units, he said, along with the photographs and letters from Foucault. They were hard to get to. Someday, he said, he would show them to me if I came back, if he could find them, maybe. So would he meet with me again? He would, and we set him a date for the following month. In between our visits, I tried to authenticate the man and his story. I discovered, as we've just heard, that Wade was born in 1940 in Enterprise, Alabama. He earned a BA in history from the College of William and Mary in 1962, and then attended Harvard University on a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, earning his PhD in 1968 on the intellectual history of Western civilization. Wade assumed an assistant professorship at Claremont Graduate School in 1972 and co-founded a doctoral program in European studies there. Photos of Wade at this stage in his life reveal a staggeringly handsome man, tall, athletic, and always dressed in a suit and tie. The European studies program was short-lived and so, apparently, was Wade's career at Claremont. And at this point, the record on Wade got sketchy. I visited Claremont Graduate School to look for tapes of the television program or some other archival evidence of Foucault's visit or even records of Simeon Wade's teaching career there. There was no record of Foucault's visit in the Claremont Graduate School archive. And I was only able to document Wade's time at Claremont by searching through old copies of the student newspaper. There. Um, that's Simeon in the middle with the beard with his hand up and his chin. And that's Robert Darton, who wound up running the New York Public Library. And um, Peter Gay, one of the most oh. famous historians of the time. Which direction yeah. are you going? Do they say right or left? Uh, right. Peter Gay's on the far right. Yeah. I went back to Oxnard the following month and again waited for Wade at Starbucks. On this day, Wade arrived empty-handed, but only 20 minutes late, and he wanted to talk about the value of mind-altering experiences. All cultures spring from hallucinogenic mushrooms, he said. Think about it. The ancient Greeks, the Aztecs, the Vikings, all had rituals centered on the state of altered consciousness from mushrooms. And what's ritual but a form of religion? And what's religion but a form of culture? Oh man, I thought, this satire writes itself. <laughs> <laughs> I requested another meeting the following month. Wade's primary topic of conversation was Foucault. He considered Foucault to be the greatest thinker of our time, perhaps of all time. Quote, to compare him to any other is like lighting a candle in the sunshine, end quote. Wade had an encyclopedic knowledge of Foucault's work. And he talked of his friendship with the philosopher as the second great stroke of luck in my life. The first great stroke of luck in Wade's life, he told me, was the third person on the trip to Death Valley with Foucault, the pianist Michael Stoneman. Wade met Stoneman in 1974, and they were a couple until Stoneman's death in 1998. Their open cohabitation apparently caused some resentment in the conservative town of Claremont in the 1970s. Uh, David Wade, whom I met much later, recalled that Simeon didn't just come out. He came out. <laughs> uh, David told me about Simeon and Michael's shared love of music and how in one of their houses they had placed a pair of grand
playing pianos head to head in the living room so they could play Olenski duets. As we continued to meet, Wade started to let me see beyond the persona of Foucault's friend. He said he had known Timothy Leary at Harvard, and he, Leary, was, quote, all about the orgasm. He spoke of some of the dire consequences visited on a nonconformist in academia in the 1970s. According to Wade, he didn't make tenure at Claremont Graduate School because, quote, they said I was a drug dealer. They said we had orgies. They said I was a madman, end quote. He hinted at the dark times he and Michael endured after he left Claremont. Together they ran an art gallery for a while, and then Wade began picking up teaching gigs around Los Angeles although he never again held a tenure track position. His longest association was with the Otis Art Institute where he taught history and art history for 16 years. Eventually he earned his RN degree and found work as a psychiatric nurse at County USC Medical Center because he quote, wanted to work with real madmen. <laughs> Simeon and Michael were in increasingly desperate financial peril during this time. Perhaps because of this or perhaps in tandem with it, both men faced crises in their physical and mental health as well. In 1998, Stoneman died of alcoholism at age 47. Despite the specificity of Wade's stories, I could find little evidence to support them. Scholarly mentions of the friendship between Wade and Foucault were scant. David Macy expresses the general dismissal of a drug-induced epiphany in the life of Michel Foucault, saying, writing, Quote, reports from those who claim that he told them that it changed his life should probably be treated with some skepticism. The insights granted by LSD tend to be short-lived and illusory rather than real, end quote. The ongoing friendship between Foucault and Wade was beginning to seem more based on hope than on fact. I thought that perhaps Wade was just an old lonely guy who told tall tales about his one brush with celebrities. However, evidence began to trickle in I discovered that there is, in fact, a photograph in Time Magazine, November 16, 1981 issue, of Wade and Stoneman laughing with Foucault outside a conference in 1981. Remember those tennis shoes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is Simeon Wade on the left. No, on, on, yes, on the left, Michael Stoneman on the right, and Foucault in the middle, of course. And this was at USC. Uh, there was a conference on Foucault in, I think, 1981. Um, uh, and after we had been meeting for about a year, Wade showed up one day with his manuscript, Foucault in California. It was copyrighted 1990, and Wade said that Foucault had read it and approved its publication, but no publishing house would touch it, too scandalous or perhaps too tainted by its connection with Wade. This is the only copy left, he said. I can't let you have it. So we drove together to a copy shop, and, I wa and he watched as I photocopied the pages one by one. Wade's manuscript is as outlandish as I could hope. <laughs> Foucault in California is written in the same high-velocity voice as the fantastical stories Simeon told me over coffee. It describes how the initial idea of an experiment with Foucault's mind soon evolved into a premeditated bacchanal with Wade and Stoneman at the center of the action. Within Wade's enthusiastic description of his Dionysian scheme, sacred and popular references mix. Joanne Woodward as the dissociative personality in the 1957 film, The Three Faces of Eve, compounds with the biblical Eve. 
Mussorgsky's 1967, which established merges with Stokowski's 1941 interpretation of Euclidean's Camtasia. This high-low fantasy Camtasia provides a glimpse into Wade's bivalent thinking. His writing is exaggerated. His devotion to Foucault is unshakable. However, by the time I read the manuscript, I had abandoned my original idea of an expose of the theory movement. I realized that this territory has already been well covered, satirically and otherwise, by people far more fitted for the task than I am. Scholars have continued to pick through Foucault's work after his death with waves of books and articles, debates and challenges following each new translation and publication of work from Foucault's immense youth. My feelings, my feelings about Foucault are unimportant. Also, I began to take seriously some of what Wade was telling me. While Wade's gonzo manuscript has its funny moments, and it definitely is tempting, to me at least, to mock the drugs at play or use them as a punchline as the cover of his book does, the subtitle, Foucault dropping acid in the desert. This minimizes what Wade certainly and Foucault possibly were trying to do, expand consciousness, have a limit experience. Until recently, the very 1970s idea of having, as Wade puts it, a magic elixir to expand consciousness was so out of fashion as to be ludicrous. However, current research has called this dismissal of the, of the psychedelic experience into question. This assertion that LSD's effects are short-lived and illusory is now being challenged, and therapeutic uses for a long-denigrated substance are now being explored. Perhaps altered consciousness is not just a joke. And finally, and to my surprise, I lost my desire to hold Wade up for ridicule. Instead, we became friends, eventually celebrating birthdays and holidays together. Even so, I was still not fully convinced that his manuscript was any more than the product of an extremely fertile imagination. <laughs> then, early in 2016, Wade, who was simian to me by then, located a carousel of slides depicting the Death Valley trip. There was Foucault with his arm around a shirtless Michael Stoneman grinning at Dante's view. In another shot, Foucault gave gazes <coughs> off into the distance at Zabriskie Point. He was tripping his brains out in this one, Simeon said. The images were stunning. There's another one, Foucault with his bug glasses on. But more importantly, they were proof finally that this trip did happen. In addition, multiple images of Foucault and Simeon at, at uh, Michael and Simeon's house in Claremont supported Simeon's assertion that Foucault returned to visit them at least one more time. These snapshots illustrate what Simeon had claimed he and Foucault were friends. And that's Simeon in the flowered shirt in a fantastic 70s fashion. At this point, I began to lobby Simeon to allow me to interview him for publication. It took more than a year for him to agree. When this interview and a few of the images were published in the online journal Boone, California in September 2017, I drove out to Oxnard to show it to Simeon on my laptop as he still did not possess a computer of his own. And this was Simeon in 2017 on the day I showed him uh, that his work had been published. We met on a Friday as usual. He was late, of course. The following Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017, Simeon died unexpectedly in his sleep. He was 77 years old. While sorting through Simeon's belongings, 
David and his wife, Nancy Pobans, uncovered the letters from Foucault, which Simeon had talked about but never could find. These letters reveal that Foucault did indeed claim the night in Death Valley as, quote, a great experience, one of the most important in my life. And that's from a letter on May 14, 1975, And that Foucault had read Simeon's manuscript and responded positively, if, if nomically, uh, forgive my French, comment aurait-il été possible de ne pas aimer toi? How is it not possible to love you, Simeon? Other letters assert that Foucault was considering larger changes in his life. Quote, I feel that I have to emigrate and become a Californian, he wrote <laughs> on May 30, 1975, and prove that Foucault and Simeon were in touch until 1984, the year Foucault died. Unfortunately, David and Nancy did not find Foucault's manuscript about monsters, nor did they find the letter asking Simeon and Michael to come to Paris to help Foucault die. Uh, and Simeon's papers, the slides, and, his, and these letters have all been donated uh, generously by David and Nancy to the USC-1 uh, National Game Resting Archives uh, down in Southern California. And they'll be available to the public uh, just as soon as they get cataloged. Um, so although he was too old and I was too stodgy for my own acid trip, <laughs> Simeon did once organize an experience for me. He placed me in a chair, and this is what Simeon's apartment looked like, behind a wall of books in his jammed, hoarder-level apartment and handed me a large Cadbury milk bar. I wasn't happy about this. I'm fond of neither clutter nor milk chocolate, and it was getting late, and I was worried about getting home in the dark. Simeon disappeared behind a wall and began playing sh a Chopin etude. In the dim light of the fading day, my world was reduced to a view of books and the sound of a piano. The best word I can use to describe this is stupefying. At a particularly lovely moment, Simeon called, eat the chocolate now. <laughs> so this experience was just a shadow of the immersive event that Wade created for Michel Foucault in Death Valley. But now for me, milk chocolate will always have the resonance of Chopin and the memory of a friend, and my life is richer for it. Furthermore, I now understand how an evening on LSD, in carefully prepared doses, in the desert night, with delicious music, nice people, and some chartreuse, could perhaps be one of the most important experiences of a person's life. Wade's book, Foucault in California, allows you to ride along on this Death Valley trip, and may your life be richer for it. So we have Heather to thank for all of this because she brought my brother out of a deep 22 year seclusion um, in which really I was his only visitor other than his roommate and um, um, and Heather was with us on the day that my wife found the Foucault letters and we read them to each other and chills still go up and down my spine every time I read one of those letters. Um, so thanks to Heather for all that she has done. Now the book. Usually when I say I, I mean Simeon, right? I mean, he's the one writing this. In 1969, when I was living in Paris, I inquired about Foucault from my lover, 
who was a professor at the Sorbonne. She told me that Foucault belonged to the infamous circle of homosexual intellectuals in Paris. He is one of them, she said contemptuously. However, she deigned to respect his work. When I asked if she agreed with Foucault's politics, she replied that her loyalty to the left was only in terms of lifestyle, nothing more. <laughs> Her Highness also told me not to bother trying to read Foucault's Archaeology of Knowledge shortly after it appeared in the Parisian bookstores because it was far beyond my powers of comprehension. The news that Foucault was openly homosexual, the notion that his books were too difficult for a struggling American student, and his reputation as an advocate for the May 68 student uprising in Paris whetted my interest in him even more. Uh, just a little bit of history at this moment, if you don't mind. Um, my brother and I grew up in an evangelical Southern Baptist family in New Orleans and Houston and my brother was extremely religious, very pious. He taught Bible studies to the under seven-year-olds. Um, and at William and Mary, he was president of the Baptist Student Union. And then he decided to major in history. And he took a course on Marx. And within 30 seconds, <laughs> he was an evangelical Marxist. <laughs> And, um, and um, he taught a course at Harvard, and a young man named David Plum, who was in one of those pictures, uh, sort of audited that class. David Plum lived in a cabin on Mount Baldy, um, just above Claremont. And my brother fell in love with him. And after having dated the most beautiful women in the world, a star of Eric Romer's movies, uh, Miss Alabama, 1962. <laughs> this professor at the Sorbonne, within 30 seconds, all of that was gone, and he was in love with this guy, and my brother's sole purpose in life was to get a job at Claremont Graduate School so he could be with him. And he did. <coughs> and of course, David Plum is straight, non-responsive, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I'm going on too long, but um, <laughs> eventually my brother finally woke up that the evangelicalism wasn't going to work on David Plum, and started. he moved to West Hollywood, started going to the gay baths, Dennis pre-AIDS, and met this Michael Stoneman, and just fell absolutely madly and permanently in love. That's uh, Thanksgiving 1974, and my brother writes me a letter. Um, shortly after, and he says, I have met the love of my life, and he is satanic. <laughs> and I'm calling Merlin, not Satan, but um, you get the idea. In January of 1975, Merlin takes my brother to Death Valley and gives him LSD. That's the first heavy drug my brother ever used. In March of 1975, he writes Michel Foucault cold and says, would you like to go to Death Valley with me? <laughs> this is how fast my brother 
acts <laughs> on his beliefs. Um, and so that's why we're here. <laughs> okay, so Michael uh, Michel, as I've learned to call him, because I've gotten so familiar with him with all these papers and everything I've gone through. Uh, so Michael, Michel, and Simeon are in a car, and um, they're driving toward Death Valley. Have you heard, ever heard any music by Jean Baraquet? Foucault, changing the subject, asked Michael. No, but I do know he's an important French composer, Mike responded. I arranged some poems by Nietzsche for Baraké, and he used them for a song cycle called Sequence. I believe the cycle is dated 1955, but they were begun in 1950. Baraké and I lived together in Paris for three years, Foucault said. They were marvelous years, and our parting was difficult for me. I dropped everything and went to Sweden. Why did you split up, I asked. Alcoholism, Foucault responded. He couldn't give it up. I suppose that is a major reason why the work of Malcolm, Malcolm Lowry magnetizes me. He is the greatest. There are two ways to go, with Lowry into intoxication and the other way. <laughs> Neither is necessarily better than the other. When did you part? In 1956. Why, that would have been only a couple of years after the publication of your first book a translation with an introduction to Binswanger's Dream and Existence. I ran across it at the Bibliothèque Nationale a couple of summers ago. That's my brother talking. I thought I'd seen you somewhere before, Foucault exclaimed. <laughs> I must have spotted you there while you were reading that summer. I'm sure of it. Certainly possible, though I would not remember since I had my head in a book the whole time. <laughs> Your books, probably. How strange to think I could have met you then. At any rate, I was really impressed with the correlation you drew in your treatise on dreams between literary genres and dream analysis. I am puzzled that you did not mention it again in your subsequent work. I don't know why I did not develop that notion, Foucault responded. I do not even remember it. <laughs> there are so many provocative ideas in your early works that you never followed up. For, for instance, the arresting paragraph on madness and the collective unconscious in Madness and Civilization. You observe that we can perceive the entire history of madness in the bodily movements of individuals confined in psychiatric hospitals. That passage did not even make it into the English edition, says Simeon. Is that true? I suspect you know more about my writings than I do. <laughs> Simeon again, I'm certainly impressed with the English translators of your works, particularly A.M. Sheridan Smith. What do you think of the translations of your books? Foucault squirmed impatiently and then responded, I have no thoughts on the subject. I never read my books. <laughs> you can see how friendly people are with my brother within just, that's just 30 minutes after meeting. I mean. Simeon, other than Antonioni, I guess my favorite contemporary filmmaker is Jean-Luc Godard. Do you know him? Yes, I do. You know, he changed very much after his motorcycle accident. He has become bitter and difficult. I just happened to be in my car right behind Godard when it happened. He was crushed between two cars, and one whole side of his body was flayed. Doubly ironic, after Weekend, 
you know that film Weekend? It's about automobile accidents, which I guess was partly occasioned by his special horror of automobiles. According to one account I read, both his mother and his first wife were killed in car accidents. I did not know that, said Foucault. Once I met Godard in Claremont of all places, Simeon went on to say, I told him how much I admired Le Mépris with Brigitte Bardot and Jack Palance. I don't like it one bit where the words Godard hurled into my face. It's not political enough, he said. Godard informed me that he was not a Marxist when he made that film, but that at least he could detect his imminent conversion to Marxism in the film. Godard is a political bitch, Foucault interjected. <laughs> and rude, I added. When he was leaving the dinner, Godard confronted the host with, why do you Americans always shake hands? Why don't you try something else like grabbing my thigh or spitting? <laughs> Frankly, I did not consider Godard's thigh enticing enough to grab. I hate reading this passage, but <laughs> I have been teaching my brother David, who is an attorney, about your work. I am counting on him and all the other students of your way of thinking to reform our institutions. Reform, Foucault blurted out. His intonation was filled with such contempt that I was stunned. Later, Foucault sent me my own personal copy of Surveiller et Punir, which I framed in a kind of little prison, much to his amusement. Get it? Get it, a book on prisons in prison? Get it? <laughs> Hysterical. It was only then that I learned how the disciplined society, Foucault's term for modern Western civilization, continually renews itself by reform. In the late 18th century, the disciplined society was born in the bad faith of reform. Under the guise of reforming the prison, it really instituted a new kind of prison, far more cruel and counterproductive than anything that had preceded it. And in that respect, um, Peter, our host, um, mentioned that it's, it's time to study Foucault again because the surveillance society is now even more ubiquitous than it was when Foucault wrote of Discipline and Punish. All right, all of that is driving to Death Valley. They have now ingested the magic elixir. We were alone. The area appeared barren of life. The sky over the crest of the Panamint Mountains glowed blue-white in the darkening sky, and the salt pools twinkled in the distance beyond the thrust of Manly Beacon, an enormous rock formation that marks the place like the Parthenon defines the Acropolis. We huddled together beside the low wall, separating us from the abyss of interlocking canyons below. Michael brought out the tape deck and asked us to choose between Stockhausen's Hymnen and Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs. Without hesitation, Foucault chose the latter. Michel and Michael sat side by side on the granite parapet. The dune seemed to rise and fall in counterpoint to the voice of Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Venus appeared above Telescope Peak and sparkled ever so brightly. 
Soon she was encircled by a garland of stars with the final words of the last song, come nearer gentle peace, profound in the glow of evening, how weary we are of wandering. Is this perhaps death? We reached a transcendent congruence of place, mood, and music. Michelle, I asked, in your life was there a specific event? Say something like Rousseau on the road to Vincent, or St. Paul on his way to Damascus, even Buddha under the Bodhi tree, that afforded you the crucial insight that would determine the direction of your work. Yes, he responded. When I enrolled at the Ecole Normale, the headmaster demanded to learn if there was anything unusual about me. When I informed him of my homosexuality, he replied with horrified expression that such behavior was not normal and certainly unacceptable to the reputation of the school. He then had me confined for my own good, he said. He told me that I must be reformed, that I would be confined, examined, and treated by an array of authorities, doctors, teachers, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. At this instant, I recognized in a flash how the system works. I perceived the fundamental impulse of our society, normalization. Good stuff. So there's much more. Any questions? All right, I have some questions. <laughs> My first question is to you, Heather. Um, you know, basically, you came to bury my brother. Yes. And you wound up praising him. Yes. And I know my brother is quite charming, even with no teeth. <laughs> uh, in fact, he's quite charismatic. Um, but was there something in his ideas, you know, apart from his charm and charisma, was there something in his ideas that flipped a switch in your mind? I think one of the things I found so interesting about Simeon was that he lived his ideas. You know, he really took the idea of being a uh, revolutionary schizophrenic and lived it and suffered for it. Um, I also came to see that I think Simeon embodied a lot of the threads that were happening in, in that time um, and, uh, and, and and suffered consequences and, and enacted a lot of it. Um, so it caused me to, to see a, a period in time, which I had lived through as a child, but I had lived through it um, in a different way, in a, in a more um, complicated way. And personally, yeah, he was very charming. <laughs> <laughs> he was also very lonely and, and, um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed meeting, we met, uh, once a month, at least for uh, about three or four years, uh, and uh, and we ended up uh, we had a salon at one point, and uh, he spent several Thanksgivings at my house, and um, and it was something wonderful to be able to talk with somebody because he could just start dropping, uh, not just Foucault, but he could drop Sophocles, and he could drop anyone he wanted, you know, 
kind of a wonderful conversation that goes on. Well, I mean, you just mentioned that you were self-schizophrenic. A, a revolutionary schizophrenic. I don't think he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. No, no I mean, David would know. No, no, it's a term from uh, Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze, um, that we should live our lives as a revolutionary schizophrenic, by which he meant, and it's a poor use of the word schizophrenic, I mean, which you just hit on, but by which he meant um, the only way truly to resist authority is, is not necessarily to be a revolutionary and, and you know take up arms and things like that, but in your own personal life, every day, um, resist authority. Don't do what authority wants you to do. And my brother just adopted that as his mm-hmm. mantra. And um, and he just lived his whole life that way and paid a terrible, terrible price for it. Yeah, I, I have a complicated relationship to that idea, though, because I think you can only adopt a, uh, a stance like that if you're coming from a point of privilege, yeah. you know, to say, like, I'm going to resist authority in every in every form I see, I think you're starting from a point of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a little more complicated. It is, but just remember, Simeon gave up all of his privileges by doing it. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not saying he didn't suffer. He yeah. did. Yeah. 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 Uh, as Tim was reading Tamar, he was writing a book about decriminalizing behavior. Is that going anywhere? Is that still in... Okay, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Mike Stalker. Uh, I came back in the 70s. I lived up on Bear Canyon. <laughs> I'm one of the kind of compound characters that showed up in the six gentlemen who were out there in some very odd way. It was a kind of a humorous to see how he reached the program. And I also really loved the way, you know, <coughs> we had a, a mutual friend, Jack Thomas, uh, J.D. Thomas, who was uh, um, from Marble College, and he came through Time Up for and uh, we would do some crazy adventure, and then later in the evening, as we arrived to dinner and what have you, Jet would start recounting what happened. And I go, Jet, that didn't happen. You know, and, and, and Jet would say, I know it didn't happen. I already did that. <laughs> we'd recount it in a way that was a, you know, more imaginative and stuff. And so I think he and, and Tim had a great humor together in some ways. Um, but suffice it to say, uh, I saw this really kind of challenging situation where he was basically ousted out of the town at this very provincial way, even though it, it held itself as being uh, academic and, and high-minded. Mm-hmm. But uh, he disappeared. And this is like, so a few weeks ago, I was in Dog Ear Books uh, in San Francisco, and I was kind of with my head down looking, and I, I raised my head, and all of a sudden, Nicole staring me in the face. <laughs> and it was the only uh, I've been looking for Simeon for a long time. I'm a religious historian and things like that, but he kind of just faded away. So it really delightful. Thank you so much for, for me anyway, you know, resurrecting him. But um, so so. But, but the leisure book is. Yeah, I'm going to answer that. Mike Stalker is one of the world's foremost acousticians. Uh, he did Poyanaskazi, the movie, and but at the time of this book, I've seen pictures of him. And he's just a little hippie up in a cabin <laughs> on Mount Baldy. And he's in the last chapter of this book um, as a composite, but you can find him in there. 
Uh, anyway, the answer to your question, Mike, is that he tried to get it published many times and failed every time. And that's the excuse Fermat used for not giving him tenure. And, and the manuscript is now at the One Archives. Okay, so it's available. It exists, okay. yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks for that thanks. question. And thanks so much for coming. <laughs> we, have another, we have another friend of Simeon's, uh, Donna Broby here. She and I are classmates at Harvard, and she remembers Simeon quite well. What did he teach you? I don't remember what I told you over dinner. Was he, he taught me foot massage. <laughs> 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 I mean, he was sort of a kind of magical guy who I guess had just gotten his degree as a senior tutor in the house that we lived in. And uh, there was a group of us who kind of gathered around him and mm -hmm. we had adventures together. And I don't know where we went, a group of us with Simeon. But one of the uh, sort of events of the day was to learn how to do a proper foot massage. <laughs> and, and that's benefited me greatly in my life. <laughs> yeah, because he also taught a friend of mine how to do it. Good idea. <laughs> yeah, and he taught me yoga, and he taught me to, do, to, to get acupuncture. It's in the 80s, you know. And he was ahead of the curve on everything. On everything, yeah. Anybody else? Yes. Um, you, you mentioned that you had not um, taken a lesson from the dancer. Correct. And I was wondering if you had ever taken one from the dancer. And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and so. That affect your law practice. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> stop me. Stop me when this gets boring. Um, so remember that. Uh, in January 1975, my brother takes LSD for the first time. In March, he invites Foucault. In May, they drop acid in Death Valley. And in July 1975, while I'm working for a giant fascist law firm in New York City, my brother Simeon flies out from Los Angeles and doses me. <laughs> and um, and um, so that was my first exposure to LSD. <coughs> and then, but to answer your question, uh, two years later, Simeon took me, Simeon and Michael took me to Death Valley and gave me the Foucault treatment. Yeah. Wow. And it was, everything he says in this book, you think it's exaggerated, you think it's all composite, but the fact is, it, it may not be true, but it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> to, quote, to quote Foucault. Um, but one of the things I find really interesting is that it wasn't just the drugs. No. It was the food, it was the music, it was the it was an immersive experience. It Absolutely. Like, you know, like a, like a like a happening or Absolutely. or a theater performance. It was. And that's it. Merlin. You see Merlin set up these performances. Simeon was the intellectual guy, but Merlin was the immersive guy. Mm -hmm. So imagine, has anyone here been to Death Valley? Yeah. Of course, you're all Californians. Um, <laughs> So, you know there's a Ubi-Hibi crater there, an impact crater, and it's about 900 feet deep. And uh, Foucault didn't get to do this, but uh, Simeon and Michael took me down to the bottom of that crater, full tab <laughs> of pure LSD, and Michael put four, you know, we, back then we had boom boxes, four boom boxes at the cardinal directions, and he played four different pieces by Karlheinz Stockhausen at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that is an immersive experience. <laughs> was, was it 
It was fantastic. I mean, like, just like Foucault said, for the first time I understood Stockhausen, you know? I don't think I could explain it now. But, uh, but uh, I, I want to emphasize that um, in my brother's evangelizing LSD, he was very careful. Um, and it's the same rules that apply to Johns Hopkins and any of the places that do research on LSD. Number one, you only take the pure stuff. You know, a lot of it's cut with meth to give it a more of a jangly experience. Only take the pure stuff, only with an experienced guide, only in a place that feels completely safe, only when you have no anxieties, like you didn't just get fired or you know, you're having relationship problems or anything, because the acid can accentuate all of that. And hopefully not right before you're about to have a psychotic attack. Um, because because <laughs> now he tells us exactly. But um, yeah, if you follow those important rules, at least according to the research at Johns Hopkins, my own personal experience, it's a very meaningful experience in that. What makes it meaningful, and this is where David Macy is absolutely out of his mind because he's never taken it. Um, the, the key thing is it allows you to turn around and look at yourself objectively, right? To suppress however briefly your ego and to see how other people perceive you and honestly. And when that happened to me, you say that it affect my law practice, you bet. Because I, when I turned around and saw myself, I saw an extremely aggressive, um, to the point of meanness. Um, you know, all winning is everything, you know, um, kind of person. And I just immediately resolved, you know, I can be a lawyer without being like that. So yes, it had a tremendous, tremendous impact on my law practice. This is what Michael Pollan's new book also says, you know, which is just a, yeah, how to change your mind. How to change your mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. anybody else? Okay, I will just oh, read one, one okay, more Okay, yes. Uh, I was going to say I already read the book, and thank you so much for, uh, for putting it together. I found it a deeply moving experience. Um, I wanted to ask kind of the same question, but for Heather, you alluded in the introduction to being too study to yourself, but uh -huh. I wonder, has that changed, and if not, why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I would actually do this if I found the right guide, if the circumstances were right. Simeon was, was <laughs> way, you know, Simeon was way <laughs> yeah. um, It's hard was, when you don't have any teeth. <laughs> you, do you want to tell them about the teeth? David gets touchy about the teeth. David had gotten Simeon's teeth, and Simeon just didn't like to wear them because they impeded his taste, he says. So he had them, David got them for him, but he never wore them. I never, ever saw him with teeth, ever, not once. So I would do it if there was the right guy, but I never, I haven't had the luxury. But I am still very stodgy. <laughs> so I, I do want to do a little shout out for my wife, Nancy Coban. She's not here, but because she's an artist, and she's the artist in residence in an archaeology dig uh, in Eastern Oregon, the desert, and she's preparing for that dig. Um, and she's been on that dig for four years. And um, 
I cannot tell you how horrible the process was of going through my brother's papers. Uh, he was a hoarder, and um, uh, they were in total disorganization, and um, it was during a time of wildfires uh, in the Oxnard area, so we were getting wildfire smoke through the apartment, or it'd be 100 degrees, or we'd be in his storage space where it's eight hours of piped-in Christmas music. <laughs> there was a lot of trauma involved. And, um, and uh, the editor of Boom Magazine, who published Heather's interview, told us 15 times that if you don't find the Foucault letters, right, the letters from Foucault that Simeon say exist, you can forget everything. So in his apartment, it took us eight and a half days to go through his apartment, and my wife found a guest book at Simeon's Art Gallery signed by Michel Foucault in 1981. She found the copy of Surveillet Pounir imprisoned in the, and I could show you a picture of it. If you want to go back to the picture of Simeon's apartment, she found, um, yeah. It's a good time to have an archeologist for a wife. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now you find, it's in this picture. You find the picture frame with the Foucault book inscribed by Michel Foucault to my brother Simeon. You find it. Where is it? Where's Michel? Yeah. Isn't it obvious? Can't you see? All right. One hour before we lost the lease to this apartment. And it still looked like this. Um, my, my artist wife, with her keen eye, says, David, there's something right there. I said, no, there isn't. Yeah, there's something right there. And it was two blankets, and between them was the book imprisoned in the picture frame that my brother couldn't find for 22 years. She saw a corner of the picture frame. Anyway, that's the kind of uh, work it was. And um, Heather came and worked with us one day, and um, at a depth of, using archaeology terms, at a depth of 11 feet, <laughs> under sedimentary layers of camping equipment, those Stan Smith shoes that my brother wore in that 1981 photo, they were there. <laughs> uh, all of his blue jeans that he'd worn out, um, broken pieces of furniture and appliances. At the bottom of... Really, she had to go 12 feet down. She found that cash box with the Foucault letters. And that's why, frankly, we're here today. So a little shout out to her, and we now call her the, she's the artist in residence on the Rimrock Draw Archaeology Dig, which, by the way, has just published uh, the finding that the dig was occupied 18,400 years ago. That's the oldest occupied site in North America. Okay, so she's the artist in residence on that dig, and she's the archaeologist in residence on Simeon's project. <laughs> all right, I'll read you one more thing. There's been all this doubt. Yeah, there they are. There's been all this doubt about my brother, number one, taking Foucault to Death Valley, number two, giving him acid, number three, having any effect on him. All that doubt was wiped out by those five letters right there. So I'll read you just a little bit more from one of those letters. This is May 30th, so this is about uh, three weeks after the Death Valley Tremor. 
Uh, and there is a little error in the book. <coughs> Simeon says the Death Valley trip was on Memorial Day. It was actually on the weekend of May the 10th. Anyway, this is uh, Foucault on May the 30th. I am going on with my work about sexual repression. That's the history of sexuality. I think that our conversations and my experience in Claremont are really enlightening for this work. So right there, um, it, it refutes everything that everyone said mm -hmm. for all those years. <coughs> um, and uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, the last thing my brother got was in 1984. So they, they had a 10-year relationship. And, um, and my wife incredibly found, it's right in that box. You see that box? Ask USPS, uh -huh. right? And all that utility bills, doctor bills, um, dunning notices from the IRS, grocery receipts from 1982, <laughs> and sitting on top is a card from Michel Foucault, and it's, it's uh, dated January 1984, and it says, and I'll translate from the French, um, have a good new year, 1984, I hope to see you in California this coming autumn, and of course in June he died, so um, we pretty much had a complete relationship between my brother and Foucault. And thank you very much for coming. Thank you.